Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for May 23rd, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right. I'm glad to have everybody back on. Uh, excited tonight for our guest, uh, Rachel Bloom, a political science professor for the University of Oklahoma. She's going to join us in about 20 minutes and talk about her new book, How the Tea Party Captured the GOP, and really just about insurgent factions uh, in American politics, although um, when she wrote the book, it was more uh, Tea Party, and now I guess QAnon has come up as well as taking that to another level. Uh, But until then, we've got some topics to discuss. And the first one, you know, we've been recently doing more and more buy, sell, hold, something we started, you know, several years back on the kudzu vine. And an interesting name popped up this past week for the U.S. Senate race for Georgia Um, because some of the candidates that they had thought about running either have said no or won't make a decision, and this person, he has not made a decision either, but his name was interesting because of given how much power he holds within state government, and that would be Speaker of the House David Ralston. Um, before we even get into the buy-sell hole, Catherine, how surprised were you to see his name even rumored? I was very surprised. Uh, I just think it would be unusual for him to give up the, like you said, the amount of power and influence that he has as Speaker of the House. I mean, he's really a big fish in a in a pretty big pond. And to go from that to the junior senator from Georgia and hopefully a minority party going forward. So I, it, it did surprise me, um, especially since the Georgia legislature, um, you know, has quite a bit of influence and seems to be, you know, uh, setting trends for the country. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was surprised. Tim, uh, same thing. How surprised were you that Speaker Ralston apparently is entertaining, entertaining this enough to be rumored? Well, I, I'm just wondering how much he's entertaining it, uh, any politician worth his salt is not going to rule anything out until it has to be ruled out. And they're not going to say no when they can say something like, I have no plans to do that at this time, just in case that time comes. But uh, in his case, i got to agree with Catherine. He's, he uh, would be risking a great deal uh for perhaps not a very large return. So uh I, I just think he's one of the power names that's been thrown out there. Yes, and we'll get into the buy sell hold of the part in a minute. Um one thing I did have to wonder is he actually had uh 
primary opposition this past time, and he lives in the North Georgia mountains. I believe his home base is Blue Ridge, but his district spans a lot of those Tennessee slash um, North Carolina border counties um, up in the North Georgia mountains, one of the most conservative areas of the state. Um, and because he's the Speaker of the House, and anytime you're Speaker or Majority Leader or Minority Leader, any of those positions, you sometimes have to look at others' districts as well. And so that job might allow somebody in today's Republican Party uh, to run to the right of him. Um, Tim, any, any thought that maybe that was, goes into any of the thinking, the challenge to the right for his state house seat? Well, it could be. Uh, they, they all should be a little worried, uh, but, and, and what they're worried about is a word from the former president of the United States who is not particularly pleased with uh, recent election results, as you know, in Georgia, and he might lash out and blame any and everyone in authority for that. And so, therefore, uh, he has to tread very carefully. Um, and, and, you know, and that will help him fend off the challenge from the right because one one could come. Any any Anyone like that's looking for their chance to jump in, uh, scream fealty to Trump, and, and go after uh, anyone in office in this state, in either party. Yes, um, I think that's just one little facet, because I didn't realize he had opposition this past time that apparently was not super credible, but more credible than a Speaker of the House, Majority Leader, Minority Leader, typically would get in their district. Now, Catherine, one thing coming up is redistricting, maybe not before the next election, but definitely by the next. And um, you would think, I, I know used to, they would say that redistricting started in Harrelson County, Georgia, when Speaker Murphy was Speaker. Um, would the map emanate from Blue Ridge, Georgia, with Speaker Ralston in control? I would think so. I mean, I would think that, that that's one um, reason that it would surprise me that he would leave now um, with redistricting so close and clearly the Republicans uh, in control of that. Um, yeah, I, I, I just think, I mean, I think you make a good point that he could get some uh, uh, primary opposition from the right. But, I mean, he is pretty conservative. He's not, uh, you know, he's no he's no moderate Republican. And um, so, and, and he has a good name. The only, th- the one thing that might hurt him is there was all that um, trouble he had about his uh, law, his law practice. And I don't know, someone could bring that up. And, but that would affect him in the, in any race for the Senate as well. So I don't know how that would, what, what impact that would have if anybody really understands um, what that all meant. And he was, he was, you know, he wasn't found guilty of anything. So I don't know. I yeah, there's a, and, lot and, of, uh, a lot going on there. And, and the other thing is the article that I read sort of implied from uh, the fact that he had gone 
to meet with some of the uh, with the Republican Senate campaign committee or whatever it's called. And I wonder if he was just talking with them about other potential candidates. So we have to be careful what we, you know, what assumptions we jump to. But I mean, I, I think it's a worthy conversation. Yeah, and I agree with you. He's not a uh, moderate Republican, but we live in a, a Republican party. We, we're not in the party, but we live in an America where the Republican Party, uh, some of the people would claim that uh, Liz Cheney's a liberal Republican, um, which is, well, is probably true. definitely not the case. Very good point. Uh, and so it's just it's like a, one of the old funhouse mirrors when you look at things. So now let's get into the actual buy-sell hold. Let's you know, uh, assume that he's really considering this race, uh, buy, sell, hold. Tim, what do you do? I think I'm going to have to sell him, number one. I don't believe he's going to run. And number two, if he does run, I'm not at all convinced that he could get the Republican nomination. And if he did somehow get the Republican nomination, I don't think he matches up well at all with uh, Senator Warnock. Uh, he's he's not the big talking rabble rouser that is now preferred by the uh, Trump folks. Uh, he's he's just not that type. He might be, believe it or not, way too mainstream for them. Uh, so I just I I don't see it. Yes. Catherine, buy, sell, hold. Uh, I, I, I'm wavering between sell and hold. Um, I I agree with everything that Tim said, but I do wonder if we end up, you know, depending on what other candidates come forward, he may be the um, the favorite if he were to decide to run because he has a lot of experience and, but, you know, with the Republican party, the way it is, they may not want that. So I guess I'm going to say, I'm going to agree with Tim and say, so for pretty much the same reasons. Yeah. I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll hold. And I've got some, you know, flaws in, in his game to point out, but I'll hold just because I don't think they've got anything better at the moment um, you know, still going. It's kind of like when you play rummy and you've got a, a pair of eights, and you know that's not going to win the game, but, you know, no aces are being pulled out. So you're like, well, okay. Um, so I hold. Now, one thing I will say that impresses me about his political career is he ran for um, attorney general. He had been in the legislature. He ran for attorney general. He lost to Thurbert Baker. And he somehow came back into the legislature a few cycles later and already in the course of maybe a little over a, a decade worked his way up to the leadership of that party to be speaker. That was kind of rather impressive. Now, the one thing about speaker is all of the insiders understand and know the power of the speaker, the people down at the Capitol the people that follow Georgia politics, the people at the Wild Hog Supper, they understand, you know, who Tom Murphy was, what the, the power of that office is. But for the average Georgian, I, I don't know how much they even know who he is and understand who he is. I remember in 1998 at a political training, Tom Murphy spoke to everybody and said, 
if somebody wants to run against me in your district, because he was talking to the state, mainly the other people running for state house all across Georgia, let them run against me because they'll have to spend tens of thousands of dollars to inform their constituents who I am and what I've done in their eyes before they can even think about running for you. And I'm sitting there going, that means what he's saying is people all across this state really don't know who he is. And Tom Murphy had probably had a much bigger profile in Georgia back in the 90s than David Ralston does now. And also local news covered the state legislature much more closely than they do today. Um, so therefore, you know, David Ralston's Q rating, if you will, um, how many people actually know him uh, may be even lower for the Speaker's House or Speaker's ship because I do compare him more to Murphy than I do Terry Coleman, who had it for like a term, and Glenn Richardson, who had it for what, maybe two terms until he really just, you know, wet the bed and gave all that power up by having personal scandals. Am I missing any other speakers in, in recent Georgia history? No, that's about it. That's it. So I would think Ralston would be second to Murphy in, in power in that office recently. But how much power does he really have? And so um, that's why I can do no better than hold. Yep. Um, and I wouldn't give up that much power mm -hmm. because in the confines of the state capitol, he can get things he wants done, um, whereas in the Senate, and he's he can, one of 100. Jeff? And I think he's I think more important is he's able to stop things that he doesn't want. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of his, that's that's sort right. of his MO is that, is that he, you know, um, not so much as he pushes his own agenda, but he is good at uh, limiting uh, what does get to the floor. Don't you think? I mean, I think that's his, his will be his legacy. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of the Republican party right now. They don't really want to do a lot. They just don't want thing, other things to get done. It's very much about, you know, smallest government as they can possibly get. And unfortunately, state government, there are state government functions that have to get done. The federal government gives that power to the states, assuming that they will take care of public education. They will take care of child welfare services, um, things such as that. And so, uh, but they're definitely not expanding those things. Tim? Well, you know, another thing, too, is is the fact that the Democrats would have to pick up 16 seats right now to turn uh, David Ralston out of his job. Uh, that's not going to happen. You know, uh, in, in, in no fantasy is that going to happen, especially with the Republicans about to redraw the districts. It's going to be a good long while, I believe, before we flip 16 seats in the state house so uh, speaker ralston can stay right there for the foreseeable future at, at least uh several more terms and, and not have to worry about it uh yeah. if he steps out and starts a senate run man that I, I tell you i think it's a long shot for him uh you don't seem to think it's as long a shot as i do david do you? well i do and that and i on the and the general particularly but and this in the primary could be a long shot because they do like yeah. that crazy star factor i mean i really That's believe right. marjorie taylor green could run against any republican in the state of georgia and win a primary 
for the Republicans right now. I mean, I, I truly believe that. Um, and so that and that he's that's just not his game. Now, I'm going to ask another question that's related. Raphael Warnock, can he be defeated by a person, or can he only be defeated by a trend, Catherine? Oh. And you know what I mean by trend, a wave election that just goes against the Democratic Party pretty much nationally. Hmm. Uh, I think it's going to be hard to find a person that can beat him because he's very charismatic. He's been very um, productive so far in, in, um, in the role. And he's a nice guy. Like he doesn't he he doesn't really do attack ads, really. Um, but a, a trend could hurt him, absolutely. Yep. Kim, can can a person can the Republicans <laughs> defy gravity where they don't win other seats, but somehow knock off Raphael Warnock because of some no, magical personality I they find? I, I don't see that because I just don't see the weaknesses that Senator Warnock would personally have to have in order for that to happen. There's been no scandal, no stain attached to this man. As Catherine mentioned, his personality is bubbly, energetic. Everyone knows who Raphael Warnock is. He's a pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. You said it yourself when you were talking about Tom Murphy. Let's say the speaker ran against him. Who who would even know him? So, no, a person, I just do not see the dynamic personality on the horizon right now to beat him person to person. It would take a, a landslide election for him to yes, win. I'm going to take the final word before we get to our guest here in just one second, and um, I'm going to say that, you know, no a person can't beat him. It has to be a wave. The Republicans threw absolutely everything they had at Raphael Warnock, and there were things that you would think in an opposition briefing book would have damaged Raphael Warnock. He won anyway. He picked up so many votes between the um, initial primary election, which was on election day, and then the runoff. And so with incumbency, like Catherine's saying, he's only going to get more popular. So I think their only hope is to have somebody credible, and they may already have two, one of the two gentlemen that are credible enough, and they just hope for a wave election. Um, but now I'm so excited to bring on to the show from the University of Oklahoma, Dr. Rachel Bloom. Welcome, Dr. Dr. Blum? <laughs> hey, do we have My Dr. Blum? <laughs> yeah, I don't think we got our guest on. So that I, I actually watched videos in preparation, and that did not sound like her. So um, it was a little early, so I thought maybe she was in advance. So we'll kind of um, try that again. Um, if we see another a number pop up, hopefully we will. I'm not sure who we had on the line, and normally I don't mind taking calls, but uh, not when we're about to get into our guest segment. Um, well, let's just kind of start the next um, topic we were going to mention while we wait patiently, and that would be 
um, the um, January 6th uh, committee to, to study the events of January 6th, it looked like they were going to have a deal between uh, Representative Benny Thompson and Kevin McCarthy, and um, it kind of fell apart. It looks like the Republicans are really standing their ground and want no committee to study this in any way, shape, or form. Tim, I believe you're the most adamant about the committee of the three of us, and not that the three of us don't agree you need to have a committee, but tell us, uh, you know, um, why is it so important that a committee happens? Well, January 6th was possibly the most – well, it, it was. It was it – was, it was almost like 9-11. I, I would almost equate it with 9-11. Now, of course, there were 3,000 people killed on 9-11. It was horrific. We were attacked, uh, you know, in a heinous manner. Um, but on January 6th, our capital was breached by American citizens who were seeking to do harm to members of our Congress, to our Speaker of the House, to our Vice President of the United States. The first time the Capitol's been breached since the War of 1812, it is incumbent upon us to establish this commission to find out every detail that we can about what happened and why it happened so that we can prevent such a thing from happening again. How's that? Yes, I mean, totally understand. Well, now let me uh, try this again. Um, we are so ready to wa welcome into the kudzu vine uh, from the University of Oklahoma, Dr. Rachel Blum. Wa welcome, Dr. Blum. Thank you. Yes, thank you for calling in. We had a, I had a caller, and so we had a little bit of confusion, but that wasn't your, your doing. That was ours <laughs> on our end. Um, but wanted to have you on in, and like I said, you're from the University of Oklahoma. Give us a little bit about your background with a you know, bent towards politics. Yes, um, I grew up in politics, so to speak, uh, although I wasn't aware of it for quite a while. Um, my parents in the late 80s, early 90s, became part of what we now call the Christian right. Um, they started going to a fundamentalist uh, Baptist church. They started homeschooling my sister and I. Um, and they, they became increasingly uh, conservative in terms of, of social issues and increasingly convinced that I needed to be involved in politics um, so they, you know, signed me up as a volunteer for some state and local representatives who were Republicans. Um, they had me work on the Bush Gore campaign or the uh, Bush Cheney campaign. Um, so that was my background going into college, and I ended up going to a conservative Christian college called Patrick Henry College that really prioritizes. Um, putting Christian conservative students in politics. So this, this was the world I had inhabited leading into grad school and leading into the era when the Tea Party starts to emerge. And I start to realize that there's something going on that is and is not familiar. 
Yes, I, I saw that in your bio, Patrick Henry College, and then your graduate work was at Georgetown, and now you've taught at University of um, Miami, Ohio, and now University of Oklahoma. Uh, what was that transition like? I mean, if you don't mind sharing, when you decided to mm-hmm. uh, have the politics of Patrick Henry and then the politics of Georgetown. Well, the transition at first was almost non-existent. Um, there, it surprises a lot of people to, to realize this, but there are a lot of conservatives in academia. Um, in the Georgetown department and uh, the, the major I had at that time were on the more conservative side. So when I first started working on the Tea Party and thinking about the Tea Party, I wasn't really sure where my own beliefs were politically. I I had just learned things about um, the issue positions of both parties. Like at that point in my life, I had never seriously considered what Democrats believed. But I knew a lot about what Republicans believed and was beginning to question some of the issue positions that I'd been raised with and, and to ask how they fit into this overall picture uh, and realizing that they weren't as coherent as I thought they were. Yes, uh, well, I just knew that that was uh, two schools that are not always thought of the same. So you get into mm-hmm. academia, earn your doctorate, and uh, decide to write this book. Um, just kind of tell us what compelled you to um, write the book. The first time I had an inkling that I wanted to to write or work on the Tea Party um, was in a, a class in graduate school. It was on American public opinion, and we were assigned a working paper that some academics have been writing about the Tea Party. I forget who, I forget what it was about, but I remember being kind of pissed off about it. Um, it, it seemed tone deaf, so someone had taken their views and their language and tried to step into this other world without learning its language. Um, and I knew that from the people I was friends with or from extended family members who were part of the Tea Party, that the way the Tea Party was represented in this paper was not true to how the people who were part of the Tea Party saw what they were doing. So that sparked this interest. And when it came to time to decide what the kind of major project was that I would do for that class and the following semester, I decided I wanted to write on the Tea Party, and I wanted to start by going and talking to people who were actually spending time week after week attending Tea Party meetings, um, going through the issues, trying to uh, stake out their own identity within and apart from the Republican Party. Yes, and I can understand that, uh, wanting to seek something different out. Uh, This past semester and the professor I had was nothing like a professor you brought with a uh, an agenda like you had at um, Patrick Henry College but we were assigned um, Onward Christian Soldiers by Deal Hudson and I mean it's a you know a, a lengthy volume about the religious right but I found a book by Kristen Dumay um, Jesus and John Wayne we were lucky to have on the show recently and it's the same <laughs> subject matter told in a totally different way. So I've found that just this past semester myself where you have to look at different um, writings about the same thing, and so you just wrote your own. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I looked at a lot of writings on it 
to start with. I I mean, I read some some books that I can only call conspiracy theoretic um, at the beginning, just trying to figure out what the mishmash of ideas was that went into the Tea Party. And I read a lot of mission statements and, and documents to form a preliminary understanding before I even went into the field and started doing interviews. But what I found when I started doing interviews then forms the basis for a whole new set of questions because, of course, the questions I went into the field with weren't necessarily the right ones. Uh, I didn't learn the right ones until I, I listened to people talk for long enough to figure out the common themes. Yes. Well, I have more questions, but I have a feeling that my two co-hosts, uh, Tim Chifflett and Catherine Smith, may touch on some of these things. So I'm going to give them some chances, and I'll pass it to Tim for questions, and he'll pass it to Catherine, and then it'll come back to me, and maybe there'll be something that, that they didn't uh, get to ask about. Tim? Good evening, Dr. Bloom, and thank you for being with us tonight. Thanks for having me. Some of the Tea Party folks that I talked to, when they first appeared about a decade ago, seemed to be angry not only at Barack Obama, but they were angry at the Republican Party as well. Did you notice that in your talks with them? And if that's true, why why were they angry at the Republican Party? That is an excellent question because that's exactly the thing that struck me as different about the Tea Party. So Mm -hmm. if I can compare it to the Christian right, the Christian right saw the Republican Party as a a vehicle, um, an ally maybe, in achieving a conservative agenda. But the Tea Party saw the Republican Party as, uh, I don't know, the more powerful patron that had betrayed it. So as I started to do these interviews, I was prepared with all these questions about Obama and the, Amer- the Affordable Care Act and the bailouts and so forth. But mm-hmm. all my interviewers wanted to talk about was the Republican Party and how much they hated it and how they felt betrayed. Um, and it came from a lot of different places. So these were people who had more or less been involved in Republican politics their whole lives. They felt like they'd put more than enough effort into Republican politics, but their Bush goes uh, passing these bailouts and then they end up with Obama and they blame that on the Republican party nominating McCain. But there were a lot of other issues that the Tea Partiers brought with them into the movement that hadn't been getting a lot of airtime for quite a while. So mm-hmm. now we're familiar with more of these things through, through QAnon, but QAnon was not the first kind of major conspiracy theory, theory vehicle out there. Um, Tea Partiers uh, believed everything from the idea that the United Nations uh, was planning a global takeover through Agenda 21, which was a sustainability initiative, um, mm-hmm. they, they were, um, encouraging people to stockpile gold. Um, they were encouraging people to prepare for some sort of disaster, um, or something kind of Waco style where they would have to have like an armed conflict with 
um, the, the feds, it, all kinds of things, all these things that have always been on the fringes of polite politics were brought together mm-hmm. into the Tea Party and created this sense of distrust and anger of uh, what they began to see as establishment Republicans who didn't care about real Americans like them, who were, in their words, Republicans in name only, rhinos. Mm-hmm. So I live in the 14th Congressional District of Georgia, which is Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. So I've got, you mentioned <laughs> the QAnon conspiracy folks. Are they similar to the Tea Party, or are they something totally different? I think they're similar, um, but, of course, they different people populated these mm-hmm. two, I guess you could say, movements. So, so they're different in that way. It's not that Tea Partiers then went on to found QAnon. Um, mm-hmm. But the beliefs are very similar. The... Um, Maybe the type of people who would would be interested in this would be somewhat similar. Um, I think a big difference, though, comes from how these two movements gained popularity. So the Tea Party mm-hmm. gained popularity with older Republicans who were already involved, and it acted as a faction. It acted by like taking over state and local Republican Party chapters, whereas QAnon uh, proliferated through through the internet, uh, from what I know, which research on QAnon is difficult to conduct, but from what I know, QAnon supporters tend to be a little bit younger. They're people who um, are on 4chan, people who are searching for these breadcrumbs, and that probably wasn't helped in an era where everyone was sitting inside all the time by themselves at their computers. So. Mm-hmm. Those are some differences, maybe differences in disseminating information. But the thing they share is this deep belief that people like them, whatever that happens to mean, are under attack, and they're under attack from some unknown um, elitist force that, you know, is on the left, but they Mm -hmm. also see somewhat is on the right. So I I think Mm -hmm. they share a very... A very important um, core set of, of tenets, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, one final question. This is, uh, I suppose, a best guess scenario type question. But if the Tea Party had not come upon the scene in the way that they did in 2009, would Donald Trump have been elected president in 2016? I can almost certainly say no. Um, mm-hmm. the, the only universe where that could have still happened is if, if there had been something else like the Tea Party, but then we're talking about, you know, what a rose by any other name still smells sweet. Um, uh-huh. So we just think of the Tea Party as an insurgent faction motivated by this sense of, of threat to one's status. Mm-hmm. I think that the way the Tea Party retools the Republican Party was fundamentally necessary in order Mm -hmm. to have a candidate like Trump nominated or elected. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, there are other factors at work here, like we can talk about the primary process and how that opened the door and the lack of coordination. But the lack of coordination amongst Republican elites 
was because the Republican Party apparatus had spent the last almost decade under attack from this increasingly vocal and powerful faction. So when someone who has a, a lot of name recognition comes along and starts spouting the same kind of ethnocentric nationalist rhetoric as the Tea Party, uh, Republican leaders were, were nervous about laying down the hammer and saying, no, Trump, whatever you are, isn't part of our party. So, yes, I think if, if the Tea Party hadn't paved the way, hadn't kind of worn down the resolve of the, the people we now call never Trumpers, but the people who used to be the Republican Party, I don't mm-hmm. think we would have had Donald Trump as the president. All right. Well, I thank you for that, Doctor, and I'm going to pass it over to Catherine now. Catherine? Hello, Dr. Bloom. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. Um, It's very enlightening. I appreciate the commentary. Uh, I I wonder, one of the things that has been from the Tea Party forward, actually a little bit before that, but certainly pronounced since the Tea Party and then into the QAnon and the Trump voters is this uh, sort of unwillingness to make any kind of compromises. So uh, it it seems contrary to government to me. I'm I'm old. I've lived through a lot of different administrations and different congresses, and I feel like uh, we've given up the idea of you know, even talking to one another um, from the two sides of the aisle. And I just wonder Mm -hmm. how we get past that and get to a point where we can actually do the business of the people and, you know, pass laws, pass legislation that everyone can sort of at least come to some agreement on. Obviously, there's always there's always been compromise, but I feel like the Tea Party and then the current wave are pretty much unwilling to compromise. So how do we yes. how do we get to a point where we can, you know, have a functional government again? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I guess that's a little dramatic, but but I feel like that's sort of where we are. And uh, yeah, I don't your, think that's dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so how do we, how I mean, do we get I, there? well, this is the question that's been keeping me awake at night. I think keeping a lot of political scientists awake at night for the last 10 years, maybe more, because you're right. There has not been a time actually since the Civil War when there was this much disagreement and dysfunction in our political system based on a division between the two major parties. So this this partisan polarization is real. It's intense. It's not just at the level of Congress. It now is a social identity, um, especially on the right. So all of these different forces are coming together to create a situation where um, we have what we call asymmetric polarization. So the parties are somewhat far apart ideologically. A lot of that's because the Republican Party has continued to move to the right, while the Democratic Party has been less 
organized or maybe less, um, there's been less ideological agreement in the party. So they've had to stay more in the center. Um, and then again, among Republicans, because of the Tea Party and other things like that, we've increasingly seen overlapping social identities um, getting activated. So the idea that uh, being a member or former member of law enforcement means you must be a Republican is a new idea, but it, it starts to create a situation where identity politics and Republican politics are really wrapped up for a lot of people now, and that makes it even harder to have conversations. So that gets kind of your, your question of what can we do about it. Um, the, the typical answer would be a cross-cutting issue, something that people from both parties can get on board with or one of the parties or, or both of the parties having to renegotiate who's part of their coalition in some way that shifts the conversation. So think the late 1960s and the early 1970s when the Republican and the Democratic parties really swap a lot of coalition members and a lot of views. And the Democratic Party stops being the, the party of the solid South and starts being the party of civil rights. The Republican Party uh, steps in where the Democrats leave off and then starts courting uh, Christians of all stripes. That change, which really sets up our system now, tells us that what we could maybe call a realignment, that that kind of thing is possible. And it's possible with the kind of issues that are still um, milling around in our politics today. I think some people were hopeful that Trump and the insurrection and everything that kind of um, <laughs> took place in this last uh, dumpster fire of a year would push some Republicans at least more towards the center or more towards agreement. And it did a little bit, but now what we're seeing is the Republican party pushing those people out of the party. Still, I think, I think we can look at that episode and maybe at Trump's second impeachment hearing as giving us a little bit of hope. Um, I'm not necessarily saying because uh, more people voted to impeach Trump. What I mean is that we had a historic number of people from the president's party voting to impeach that, at that point, former president. So that does smack of some sort of, of bipartisanship that's possible, some kind of, of coalition governing that's possible. And it means we could start to see a slow, very slow trend in another direction. And I, I think to a lot of people that was the appeal of a, a Biden candidacy because he's well known for creating coalitions um, for making compromises, all the kinds of things that maybe the Tea Partiers hate and the progressives hate, uh, those are the things Biden is good at. But right now we're in this giant experiment of whether that works, right? Whether having yeah. a uh, coalition-based president really helps us build these cross-cutting coalitions, and that remains to be seen. I think I have to say that I really thought 
uh, during the Obama administration that I thought healthcare was going to be that issue that, Mm -hmm. you know, brought people together. And then I also thought once the pandemic, I mean, I sort of gave up on it after uh, when there was so much, I mean, we did get the ACA passed, but then the, you know, cutouts and stuff, but Mm-hmm. I thought the pandemic might do the same. It might re-energize people around healthcare, but it actually did the opposite. So I, I, I'm, 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 uh, I'm done making predictions. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> yeah. watching now. <laughs> yeah. But I have one more. Oh. I have one more question for you, completely unrelated. I'm just curious mm-hmm. if you'd like to share how your family feels about your book and your, you know, uh, how, if that's created any tension or if it's been uh if it's enlightened them at all if you don't want to share that that's fine I understand it but I was just curious yeah no I I don't mind talking about it um I I will say my parents have not read my book um they haven't really even asked to which is which is fine um I don't expect them to uh my sister has but my sister followed a similar path and is just now graduating from one of the top law schools in the country. So the big, the big source of conflict in our family um, that at this point, I think we've all kind of reached an agreement on was over higher education itself. So long before I ever conceived writing a book, the fact that I was going to um, Georgetown, which they saw as very liberal um, that I was pursuing something in higher education and then the fact that my sister went to again not a religious law school is pursuing a career (laughs) in law that was that was tough for them um however uh, this might not be what you expect to hear but the the trump presidency i think brought us closer um there are two kinds of conservatives that I've been around during the Trump presidency. Um, my in-laws are one kind and my parents are another. My, my in-laws really dug in. Um, my father-in-law is former law enforcement. They're, they live in a rural uh, area of a Midwestern state, and they bought into it all hook, line, and sinker. My parents, on the other hand, um, these are people who – went to see Mike Pence speak at Focus on the Family, um, thought he was a really good man, <laughs> um, but hated Donald Trump since long before he ever declared a candidacy and really struggled with the decision of whether or not, for the first time in their lives, to skip voting. Because they, they didn't think they could vote for a Democrat, but they, they didn't think that the Republican Party was a party that had a place for them anymore. So... In an ironic way, um, all of that kind of ended up bringing us together. But we, we've had to learn to use the right vocabularies around each other. We've learned we can talk about almost anything as long as we're really willing to try to understand why the other person thinks what they think instead of why they're not using the same language we're using. Yeah, well, I think that's... Um... I think that's a good lesson to learn. I think we all could <laughs> use a little bit of that lesson. But I have to say I'm I'm um, pleased to hear of, um, you know, obviously devout Christians 
rejecting um, Trump. That's always been one of my um, one of the most peculiar things to me is to see the behavior of our former president and then also see, um, you know, a large number of Christians support that. It, it just has always been peculiar to me. So it's nice to hear that it's not always the case. <laughs> yes, I agree. I've seen way too many of those those memes the Tea Party was sharing with Trump kind of descending through the clouds with like the Ten Commandments and a halo, you know. Um, yeah. no. So <laughs> it's very confusing. Well, that, that must be a relief for you too. So thank you so much for yeah. sharing with us this evening. I know we asked some very probably personal questions and we appreciate that. But I'm going to pass it to David for any final questions he might have. Thanks so much. Yes, uh, Dr. Bloom, uh, this is why I've co-hosted. I had some topics in mind, and you touched on all of them with Tim and Catherine because uh, I guess they were thinking a lot of the same things that I was. So I'm going to ask you something um, else about you moved <laughs> recently because I, I saw you were at University of Oklahoma, and I asked uh, about Dr. Garris. And you knew of him, but you had just recently come to Oklahoma. So let me ask you about that. You went from Ohio, a state that I, I guess you might say is a declining swing state. It's not as swing state yes. as it used to be, to Oklahoma, which is staunchly Republican. How do you think that impacts studying uh, politics? Um, I think living in both states has really helped me keep my finger on the pulse, I guess. Um, but, I mean, I'm from the, from the West. I grew up in Colorado and Oklahoma. Um, my whole family's out in the West. Uh, my parents moved back to Oklahoma when we moved here. So there's something about this, the climate here that's familiar to me. And the, the thing I least expected was to feel that Oklahoma is actually a little bit more open-minded than Ohio was. Now, of course, I am generalizing. I live in Norman, which Oakies consider to be very liberal. I mean, it is not, but still. Um, it's one of the three municipalities that ever had a mask mandate in Oklahoma. Um, and the part of Ohio that I lived in and taught in and, and the people I knew in Ohio were very, very conservative. It was, I used to count the number of Trump signs I saw on my way to work, and I had an hour drive from where I lived to Oxford, where Miami University was. Um, I counted 101 Trump signs and two Clinton signs uh, right before the 2016 election. So Ohio was a place where it felt like Political, the Republican identity was much more important to people. Um, these issues were much more at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Whereas in Oklahoma, everyone just kind of lives and lets live, or maybe everyone assumes everyone else shares their views and they don't feel in battle. Um, but I think those are both important. They give us important insights into who the contemporary Republican voter base is. Um, because the Ohio Republican voter base is largely made up of people who used to be um, part of union families, who used to be Democrats or who were uh, 
people who'd moved up from Appalachia for manufacturing jobs that disappeared. So it's, it's a place where being Republican meant being angry and blaming East Coast liberal elites who they assumed were all Democrats for those problems. Where in Oklahoma, it seems to have more to do with wanting to be left alone and going to church. So both states have been interesting. Um, I have to say I prefer Oklahoma, but that might just be because everyone here is fine leaving everyone else alone if they want to be left alone. Yes, well, well that, that's interesting, uh, you know, take on that. I know, uh, of course, the University of Oklahoma's political science department has so many good scholars in it. Getting a new one uh, soon, a, a friend of the show, J.J. Abrams, who's coming in to, I guess, um, work on his Ph.D. and do some graduate uh, teaching with you. Um, mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Bloom, I wanted to uh, leave you with this, uh, letting you tell um, our listeners, where they can read not only, of course, your book, find that on Amazon and wherever you know quality books are sold, but where they can read some of your um, political thoughts and theories in the meantime. Yes. Um, so that, that book is How the Tea Party Captured the GOP, Insurgent Factions in American Politics. And, yes, you can buy that on Amazon. Um, the University of Chicago Press sells it through their website. Uh, beyond that, I keep a relatively up-to-date website that I'm in the process of overhauling uh, where I, I try to provide links to my commentary, interviews, articles. Um, and the place where I'm most active on a day-to-day basis would be Twitter. So my handle there is at BloomRM, so B-L-U-M-R-M. Uh, I try to at least retweet articles that I mentioned in or, or interviews I do, uh, even if I don't always have the time to eloquently type out my thoughts on politics. Yes, and then if our listeners want to uh, look it up, I actually tweeted your handle in the tweet about you being on, so that's where our listeners could find the exact spelling. Well, Dr. Bloom, we know that this what you're uh, uh, studying is kind of a living issue. It's not going to be in the past. It's going to be in our present and our future. So if possible, mm-hmm. maybe down the road we can get you on the show again. Yes, I would love that. This is and I have really enjoyed talking to you all about it, especially. Yes. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank, thank you, Doc. You. Yes. Dr. Have Rachel Bloom, you too. Um, and enjoy your time, uh, I guess, getting back to normal teaching soon. Mm-hmm. Yes. That was uh, Dr. Rachel Bloom of the University of Oklahoma, her book, um, regarding uh, how the Tea Party captured the GOP. Uh, definitely a good read. Watch a lot of videos on it. Want to read it uh, very soon. Um, just sounds like an important area of research. Tim, Catherine, you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to get my wife to order that one for me, as a matter of fact. Yes. Catherine, any final thoughts on this? Sorry, I was on mute. Um, yeah, it sounds really interesting, and she was a great guest and um, a, a really, really compelling story of um, how she got where she is. I, I, it was a pleasure to hear her. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. it was a very interesting story. Well, um, that's going to be the show for tonight. We decided we we're going to close it after after the guest. It was close to the end of the hour anyway. And until next week, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Not everybody. Good night. Good night, y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the